is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Barbara Ramirez. And I am Riazula Alikozai. Tonight, we take stock of all that is happening across the country. COVID-19, questionable leadership, police violence, the murder of unarmed Black people, and the social response to it all. Riaz, there is so much, and we want to offer perspective and hope in this one hour. So, we have gathered interconnected perspectives that look at race, police violence, media, and voter suppression. We want to offer a historical perspective as well as a current look at the state of anti-Blackness in America. So we bring you an interview with former U.S. Senator Fred Harris, conducted by our own GJ director, Roberta Rayel. Senator Harris gives us a historical account of the Kerner Commission and the Kerner Report, which he helped to author more than 50 years ago. It is important to build our understanding of today. In light of the death of George Floyd and the civil uprising happening in Minneapolis and other cities, including Albuquerque. Then we bring us back to 2020 with a special discussion about the anti-blackness black men face. This discussion was broadcast by All Things Considered and was produced by one of our very own DJ members, Jason Fuller. We end our program with another special interview conducted by our good friends at Counterspin about voting suppression in America which holds extra gravity in New Mexico as we prepare for our primary election this week. Music is a vehicle to help us feel and heal. Here's a tune from Marvin Gaye that captures the sentiment from the 1967 period of unrest that preceded the Kerner Report. That's right, it's called What's Happening Brother? Just getting back, but you knew I would War is hell, when will it end? When will people start getting together again? Are things really getting better? Fred Harris is a former U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, a published author, and the last living member of the Kerner Commission which was established by President Lyndon Johnson to investigate the causes of social unrest of 1967. Although the commission was established more than 50 years ago, it is still relevant to this day, considering what is happening around our country to people of color. Now, Fred Harris joins Generation Justice Director Roberta Rael to help us understand the history and role media played before, during, and after the commission's report. Fred Harris is an American politician, educator, and writer who served as a U.S. Senator from Oklahoma from 1964 to 1973. In 1967, Harris and others persuaded President Lyndon Johnson to form the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, also known as the Kerner Commission. 
Fred, I want to welcome you to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you. Will you please give us a little bit of the history of the Kerner Commission and the Kerner Report? Well, in the summer of 1967, there were riots and violent protests in a large number of cities throughout the country with killing of people, most of them innocent people, most of them black people, and burnings and lootings and a great disorder. The worst were uh, worst of these riots were in uh, Detroit and Newark. President Johnson had to call out the army troops in order to finally quell those. And in the midst of that uh, Detroit riot, while it was still going on, he appointed a Blue Ribbon Citizens Commission called the uh, Kerner Commission because the, the chair of it was uh, Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois. The actual name of the commission was the President's National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. And he appointed me and 10 others to this commission. We uh, undertook hearings for 20 straight days, hearing from everybody from J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and others. And then we divided up into teams. John Lindsay, the mayor of New York, and I were a team and went out in the country and visited actual riot cities, as did our, a lot of our staff. And then we met for 40 straight days and voted on every word uh, that was in our report. The central thing we said was that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And further, we said, white people really have never fully understood, but Negroes, as we said in those days, have always known, is that the black ghettos were uh, established by white people, by their actions, and they were sustained that way. We found in these riot cities wretched poverty and deprivation, enormous discrimination on the basis of race and ethnicity, criminally inferior schools, terrible housing, no transportation, and no jobs. And so we made uh, very strong recommendations in all those fields. And the great problem was that the President Johnson, who had appointed us and told us his exact words were, find the truth and express it in your report. That's what we did. But he was misinformed about what we found and said, and he rejected uh, the report. Thank you so much for that history. Did the report ever get fully disclosed? Was it celebrated or was it not really fully? Yes, we wanted to be sure that it could not be suppressed. So we made a deal with the Bantam Books to bring out a paperback edition of it exactly on the day, the official date of the report, which was March 1st. And that book was a wildly runaway bestseller. It went through 23 printings. And we had also, in order to uh, get people to see what we'd seen through our eyes and uh, know what we knew, we put out the report with an embargo to media people because we wanted to have time for them to study it and for us to answer their questions about it and explain it prior to the time that they would actually report it. We knew that recommending the kind of great new federal programs, costly, we said, yes, these are going to cost a lot. And the fact that we used for the first time in an official document the word racism. We knew White that, racism. Yes. We knew that was going to be controversial. And so we wanted to background people a while. But we didn't have that opportunity as it turned out. Somebody leaked the report with evil intent, intending to lessen its impact. And so we just turned it loose to everybody, of course. The Washington Post said, we're going to report this in the morning. And consequently, uh, there was just chaos. An Associated Press reporter called me, for example, that night, and he said, uh, 
I have a 30-minute deadline. This is a report that's 600 pages long. I have a 30-minute deadline. Could you just sort of capsulize it for me? And the result was headlines everywhere, white racism, cause of black riots, commission says. So the way that the media covered it also skewed how the report and the information from the report got received. Right. I would love for you to talk about that, and I'd love for you to talk about then moving into what did the report say about media coverage? What we found was that the media reports sensationalized the riots and focused on the police. It didn't really get into any depth at all to the wretched conditions where people were living. For example, they didn't put in context the terrible hostilities that existed in these places against the police. The police were virtually all white. They came in during the daytime. They lived somewhere else. They came in during the daytime more or less to enforce the law against these people instead of enforcing the law for them. So we said, among other things, about the police that they ought to look like the people with whom they're dealing. And we ought to do away with this militarization of the police, which was already beginning. No place for tanks and automatic rifles and so forth in the urban situation. And we recommended what came to be called community policing. That Not just enforcing the law, but involved in all of the aspects of the community's life. What I said about the police was also something that we talked about with the media. They were virtually all white. So what one thing we said was there ought to be many more Hispanics and African-Americans and others, uh, minorities in the media. The other thing we said about the media was that they didn't talk about why were people so hostile toward the police, the grievances that they had. I mean, they were well-founded. And they didn't focus on the terrible conditions where these people who were involved in the disorders were living. So there's no context. And therefore, I think a great many people, white people, were enormously surprised. Why are they so dissatisfied? We've passed the Civil Rights Act of 64, and we've passed the Voting Rights Act, and we're trying to do something about segregation in the South and so forth. They had no idea how so many of their fellow Americans were having to live and how limited were their prospects economically and otherwise. The journalism schools and others have got to pay more attention to underlying causes and conditions and well in advance and uh, let people know about these conditions that still exist. I think public officials have a great uh, responsibility as well. It's been a long, long time since we've had a serious candidate for president of either party who's even uttered the words poverty. Everybody talks about the middle class. For example, years ago, poverty got onto the national agenda primarily because John Kennedy, as a candidate for president, went into Appalachia with the national press following him and talked with and saw those poor coal miners and other people living in desperate conditions, and the reporters reported it. Robert Kennedy, we'd learned more about racism and poverty in the Black Delta of Mississippi because Kennedy went there with the press in tow. The media's better covering actual events. And so uh, politicians ought to take them with them and go and actually see how people are living and see the conditions there. Thank you for that. So I'd like to talk about your new book, Healing Our Divided Society, Investing in America 50 Years After the Kerner Report. It's about to be released. Right. And what is the content of this book? Do you have analysis of the past 50 years? And if so, what are some of the highlights of the book? It really is a Kerner Report 2.0. It's an update of the Kerner Report of 1968. I'm a co-editor with Alan Curtis, who's the president of the Eisenhower Foundation. And we've done it with 
getting authorities from, for example, Nobel economist Joseph Stiglitz to the head of the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman, 23 of them taking some aspect of what we dealt with in the Kerner Report originally and bringing it up to date. What's the situation now Mm -hmm. and what needs to be done? And what we say in, in this report, the basic message is this, that discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity is worsening again. Mm-hmm. Segregation of schools and of housing, we're resegregating in the cities and the schools. And the inequality of income and wealth is much worse than it was. And poverty, there are far more, millions more people who are poor now than they were 50 years ago. And poor people today, a large percentage of them are in deep poverty. That is, their income is at or below the uh, poverty level or one half of the poverty level. And then what we want to get across is these things are not only terrible for the people who are living them, but they're bad for all of us. Mm -hmm. That's not good for our country. If people could have jobs, we talk about jobs primarily, that's going to boost the economy for everybody. So these problems are not just the problems of black people or Hispanic people or poor people. They're all our problems. And doing something about these problems will be good for all of us because as my old Texas friend and populist Jim Hightower says, everybody does better when everybody does better. Absolutely. Thank you for that. What do we need to do in this moment in time to help to go back to your quote, we all do better when we all do better? I think we've gone several years when it just was not socially acceptable to uh, be a racist right out, both in words and actions. But now I think with the, this last presidential campaign and the operations of the, and so forth of this present administration, too many people, I think, feel that they're sort of given permission to express racist views. And worse than that, maybe even in violence, as we've seen some of these white supremacist operations. So there are far more black churches, synagogues, mosques that now are being attacked and burned. And there's a great deal more violence against uh, groups like that, against LGBT people as well, people, anybody that's a little different from the dominant society. So I think that that's something that ought to worry us a great deal. Black Lives Matter, I think that's an illustration of the kind of thing we're going to have to have. Individuals have got to, and groups have got to raise hell themselves about this, and maybe the general media will follow, but also we need some way to help educate young people to a kind of a media sense that everything you see on Facebook in that echo chamber may not even be legitimate, may not even be by who... uh, the author says he or she is. So there's a lot needs to be done, but it's going to depend on citizens groups like uh, Generation Justice and Black Lives Matter and others. But we can use that technology and make it a blessing for us, I think. I would think that that has been the same from the 40s, 50s, and 60s in this country, and even before, of course, that it was citizen groups who helped to push change to occur in this country. Right. People ask me, well, you sound optimistic that what you're now recommending in all these various programs and so forth, what makes you feel that they might be done? Well, I say, number one, I'm heartened by remembering 
that the civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis, people like John Lewis, who I think is a living saint, that started in a lot darker and worse times than now. The odds were really against them, but they resisted, they persisted, and they ultimately prevailed. They started out there with the people, and that's the kind of thing you're doing, and it's the kind of thing we need more of. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Thank you for that. Once again, it's been such a true pleasure to be able to spend this time with you. I thank you, and I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Mr. Harris, for talking to us about part of the history that is often not taught in school, and for the work that you've done to shift the narrative. Thank you, Fred Harris, for taking your valuable time to go over the history of the Kerner Commission and the role that the media played in their findings. If you would like to learn more about the Kerner Commission report, you can find Fred Harris's book, Healing Our Divided Society, Investing in America 50 Years After the Kerner Report, at all major retailers and libraries. Coming up next is the song Mississippi Goddamn by the great Nina Simone who always used her music to speak out against anti-Black racism. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Lurleen Wallace has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? I know you can feel it Police brutality or police violence is defined as a civil right violation where officers exercise aggression or use excessive force against civilians Police brutality is unfortunately a common occurrence in our society, especially against people of color. The great majority of victims of police brutality are African-American. A key factor explaining this predominance is anti-Black racism among members of mostly white police departments. In this segment from All Things Considered, NPR's Elsa Ching speaks with Karen Atia of the Washington Post and Jelani Cobb of the New Yorker about discrimination black men face in public spaces. Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Christian Cooper. These are the names of black men we now know because of ugly encounters that were caught on video. Arbery was shot dead on a Georgia street while jogging in February. Floyd died after telling police he could not breathe as one officer's knee pinned his neck down on the ground. And Cooper, a bird watcher in Central Park, was not physically harmed, but he watched a white woman call the cops on him after he asked her to leash her dog. Each of these stories is intensifying a conversation about how black men move through public spaces. And for some of that conversation now, we're joined by Karen Atia from The Washington Post and Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So these are three incidents that occurred in three different locations. Tell me what ties them together for you. Karen, let's start with you. I mean, what ties them together is um, yet another uh, three more examples of 
the risks that we take by just being black in America. Um, and also, obviously, the power of social media and Twitter to just highlight what has been going on in this country since the country's inception. Um, I think, you know, as we are all also contemplating just in general <laughs> the value of life in this country as we're dealing with the coronavirus, um, it just many of us, um, those of us who are black, uh, realize that um, yet again, there's so much within this country that we have not fixed uh, when it comes to valuing black lives. Jelani? Yeah, I think that Karen is right. One of the other uh, things I think that tie these events together is the notion of spectacle. And so there's a kind of traumatic reality check that's implicit within all of them. Mm -hmm. You know, you consume these images in order to be able to convey, you know, the specific details of them you know, to readers, but that's not the only context in which they're being viewed. And it's difficult to watch human beings die, much less to watch uh, African Americans die in incidents that are connected to racism and not be affected by that in some way. I do want to talk about you know, one common thread in the three incidents we just mentioned with Arbery, Floyd, and Cooper, the police were involved in, at some level. And the relationship between the Black community and police, obviously, it's been fraught for decades and decades. But what was interesting about the Central Park incident is that the police did do the right thing in that case. It's just that the woman who called the cops made it clear to Christian Cooper that she was going to specifically mention to the cops the fact that he was African-American. What do you make of that piece? To piggyback off of what Jelani said, the spectacle of, of it all, I think, you know, in the Amy Cooper situation, precisely what made that encounter so chilling was that she knew what she was doing when she mentioned Christian Cooper's race on the phone. And she knew what she was doing when she was performing, you know, uh, almost uh, trying to force herself into tears and hysteria. And I think for many of us uh, watching that, we, there's a long history in this country of how um, particularly white women have used those tears because they know precisely how white men will respond to them. And for African-Americans, particularly African-Americans in this country, we know the history of Emmett Till. We know what happened when false reports were made in order to um, assert that a black man in, uh, had caused harm to a white woman. And the right. end result of that is white men using violence in order to assert their dominance over the black person in question. So when we see that in that video in Central Park, is traumatizing, it's chilling, because we know that when she said that Christian Cooper was an African-American man, she was inviting the possibility that he could be killed, right? Yeah. And so what we were seeing was an act, uh, uh, a threat of violence by her. What she did was violent. Jelani, what was it yeah. like for you to watch her make that phone call? Yeah, so I think the thing that was striking, you know, to me about all of these incidents, you know, mm -hmm. was a kind of malice, you know, or at least disregard for the humanity of the people who were victimized. But what stood out about the Cooper video was that it seemed intentional. 
and insidious and calculated in a way that I didn't necessarily think the others were, that there were people reacting and behaving in a particular kind of way. But she mm. seemed to have made a calculation. And mm. what I think made it even more damning was that she told him, you know, before she called the police, right. she said, I'm going to call the police and say that there's an African-American threatening my life, which was a way of conveying to him, you know, without saying the kind of context of that is, you know what happens in these circumstances. And in order to say that, you would have to have some knowledge of the unfair relationship between African-Americans and law enforcement. This is not a person who's making the casual presumption that every time a black person has been arrested or been assaulted, uh, by police, or there's been you know a fatal use of force that the person did something to invite it. It seems like this is a person who knows full well about the inequality within the police and judicial systems, and is going to weaponize that on her behalf, all in the cause of being allowed to uh, to let her dog roam free in Central Park. Are either of you hopeful that that change is possible? <sighs> I hesitate to answer that question. Mm-hmm. When people ask about hope or optimism, we sometimes think in the American sense that things will invariably get better. And there's a kind of fairy tale optimism that, you know, kind of cheap optimism. You know, it is entirely possible that this situation will remain as it is. It is entirely possible that the situation will get worse. You know, I hold to the possibility that things can get better, but by no means should we kind of rest on our laurels and assume that it automatically will. Karen, what about you? You know, when I hear, you know, people looking to me like, but we're going to be okay, right? We're going to be fine. I ask who the we is. And I, I like, you know, James Baldwin's answers from way back in the day, you know, Many of us in the black community feel like we are waiting for white America to make its progress. And now so much of it is being caught on camera, is being seen, is being visible. Sure. So how do we make turn that visibility into a more just and more fair and more democratic society? Um, that is what requires constant work. And as long as people are willing to do that work, there is hope. Karen Atiyah of The Washington Post and Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker, thank you to both of you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elsa Chang, Jelani Cobb, and Karen Atiyah for talking about the discrimination Black people face in this country. And a special shout out to Jason Fuller, who produced this piece. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts on what has been happening to African-American communities across the country. Our next song was released in a tweet from Lauren Hill in response to the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. It's called Black Rage. Black Rage is founded on blatant denial economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is founded on wounds in the soul. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, 
The civil rights leader, Medgar Evers, once said, our only hope is to control the vote. Evers was also murdered because of anti-Black racism. As we approach the end of the show, we would like to share an interview from Counterspin, which talks about voter suppression in America and a Kansas Supreme Court decision on mail-in ballots. Now, Janine Jackson speaks to Ari Berman, author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. It was called one of the most brazen acts of voter suppression in modern history. With an unsigned opinion believed to come from Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court voted five to four that it was okay for Wisconsin to disqualify ballots postmarked and received after their primary election day, even though thousands of voters didn't even get those ballots until after election day due to the sheer overwhelm of requests for absentee ballots resulting from the pandemic. Coming literally on the night before the election, the ruling overturned lower court's decision to extend the absentee ballot deadline and forced people to risk their health in order to exercise their right to vote. Flawed in letter and spirit, the Supreme Court's decision is just part of the setback to the Democratic project reflected in Wisconsin, and we need to understand the story who did what and how, because without intervention, it's on track to be repeated. Ari Berman covers voting rights as a senior reporter at Mother Jones. He's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Ari Berman. Hey, thanks for having me, Janine. Well, in trying to understand what happened with April's primary in Wisconsin, you have written that you need to start the clock earlier than, say, Governor Evers' push to postpone the election in the face of COVID-19 and the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court's reinstatement of it. Could you talk us through some of the roots, what you called a vicious cycle, the roots of this outrageous series of events? Yeah, I think you have to go back to when Republicans took over Wisconsin after the 2010 election, controlling the state for the first time in 50 years. And they did a series of things to try to weaken Democratic power and to try to skew political representation. One of the things they did was they passed these really horrible gerrymandered maps that made it possible for Republicans to win no matter what happened. So in 2018, Republicans in Wisconsin only got 46 percent of the vote, but they got 64 percent of seats in the state legislature. So they have a majority now, even if people don't like them. And it was a Republican legislature, remember, that refused to postpone the election in Wisconsin and also refused to mail ballots to every voter. And, and so really, the reason why Republicans are so dug in in that state is because of the gerrymandered maps they've passed. Now, they've also done other stuff, like passed an array of voter suppression laws, such as a voter ID law, such as cutbacks to early voting, changes to voter registration, that have also made it easier for Republicans to win elections, including to win a majority on the state Supreme Court, which, of course, was the court that said that Tony Evers, the governor, couldn't delay the election. 
So when you say vicious cycle, they've kind of made themselves bulletproof in the sense that the courts then support the ruling, support the politicians, and it goes round and round, and it's kind of hard to intervene in that. It's not a foolproof system in the sense that a lot of people thought the Republican or the conservative candidate for the state Supreme Court, Daniel Kelly, was going to win the election. He didn't win the election. So it shows that when Democrats are mobilized enough, they can still win elections in Wisconsin. But there's a whole series of barriers they have to try to surmount. And in the case of gerrymandering, it's incredibly difficult because Democrats actually are winning more votes than Republicans in Wisconsin, but it's not translating into a political majority. And so I think in a situation where elections are so razor thin, particularly in that state, the Republicans have a built-in advantage. Before the election even begins, they are essentially ahead because of all the structural impediments they have put into the political process through control of the legislature and through control of the courts. It was seen as a silver lining that Daniel Kelly, the conservative state Supreme Court justice, the protection of whose position was seen as a prime motivator for the Wisconsin GOP, that he wasn't successful, that he was unseated by Jill Karofsky. But then I see this story in the New York Times about how Democrats are publicly bragging about that victory and hoping that liberal activists can replicate that game plan of digital campaigning, essentially, as necessitated by the virus. It, it made this scramble to protect the vote in a crisis seem like purely partisan gamesmanship, you know, and I know it's important to say what party's doing what, but can nothing come from the point of view of democracy itself? You know, it seems to me there's plenty to chew on in Wisconsin without saying the only people critical of it are Democrats. Exactly. I think that it was good that Kelly lost, not because he was a conservative, but because the Republicans have made such an effort to suppress the vote that his election was symbolic of broader attacks on democracy, and thus his defeat could be interpreted as a defeat not for Republicans or a victory not for for Democrats, but a victory for democracy itself, and that a lot of people were able to vote in spite of the barriers that were set up, that people either waited on very long lines and very hazardous conditions to vote in person, or they were able to vote by absentee ballot at a time when the absentee ballot system was totally overwhelmed. But I don't know how transferable what happened in Wisconsin was. I mean, you have to remember, there was a Democratic presidential primary that day, and there was no corresponding Republican presidential primary. So a lot of people were just voting because they wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, and they just happened to click on the state Supreme Court race. So I'm not sure in a different environment uh, that you can really say, well, Wisconsin voted Democrat, that therefore vote by mail, for example, helps Democrats more than Republicans. I think that we don't know that. Um, the data we have on vote by mail, for example, uh, shows that both parties use it pretty much equally, which so, sort of ironic President Trump is saying that vote by mail gives Democrats these huge advantages when there's virtually no advantage for either party when it comes to voting by mail. In fact, it may even benefit Republicans because their constituencies tend to do it more than Democrats do. Yeah, it's interesting that it would be assumed that expanding the franchise uh, would be a negative for Republicans. Well, the, the Times had also a very informative piece on Wisconsin and the Supreme Court's ruling um, calling out 
the errors, you know, uh, in the ruling itself. But I tripped over this bit where it referred to Brett Kavanaugh's presumed support for, quote, laws that make voting harder, regardless of their effects on traditionally disenfranchised groups like African-American and Hispanic people, close quote. I think media pull punches sometimes with regard to the to the white supremacist aspect of this voter suppression effort. It's not a mere byproduct of some lofty philosophy about the sanctity of the franchise. I think voter suppression has been motivated by white supremacy. Historically, certainly that's been the case. And I think it's also the case today that the interests of the Republican Party and and the interests of white America go hand in hand right now. And so uh, you have seen consistently over and over and over again, the Republican Party uh, and the conservative majority in the Supreme Court intervene in ways that make voting more difficult for people of color. And they're not doing it because it happens to have that effect. They're doing it because they know it's going to have that effect. So to me, the really scary proposition here is that basically the Wisconsin opinion seemed to signal that Republicans can do whatever they want to make voting more difficult, even in a pandemic. And the Supreme Court's going to say that's okay. The sort of minimum would be that you say to people, there's so much chaos in this election, it probably shouldn't have even occurred in the first place. If we're going to have it, we got to give people more time to be able to vote. Do you think that would just be the bare minimum that they would allow? The fact that the court said no to that makes it really scary because there's going to have to be a lot of contingency plans in November. There's going to have to be a lot of modifications to voting in November to make it so that everyone can vote. And if we don't make the process easier, if we keep the same kind of ridiculous rules they had in Wisconsin, it's going to be make it, it's going to make it very difficult. Uh, for a lot of people to vote uh, if this pandemic is still going in November, which by all accounts it will be in some form or another. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like the pandemic was already going to affect the election. States need to be on top of voting by mail. A lot of polling places are shutting down. That would affect access. A lot of poll workers are elderly people. People's addresses might be changing because they're laid off. There was plenty to contend with due to COVID-19 before you even get to the suppression that it seems like it's providing cover for. Exactly. Like if states did nothing, voting would just be difficult right now. Because in a pandemic, the safest way to vote is from your home. And most states are not equipped to have people vote by home. Only five states do universal vote by mail. So in every other state, it's more difficult. Now, some states have more voting by mail A lot of the Western states do either universal voting by mail or near universal voting by mail. But on the East Coast, the Midwest and the South, the majority of votes are still cast in person. So that means they are asking a lot of people, including election officials, to use a method that is not really used for that purpose. Vote by mail is really supposed to be used for people who can't get to the polls on Election Day for one reason or another. And that means we are seeing a growth in vote by mail. In 2018, about a quarter of Americans voted by mail. That still means 75% of the country didn't vote by mail. We would expect even in the best of times, there would be hiccups with so many people trying a new system, let alone the fact that there's going to be all these efforts now to make it harder to vote by mail, which is going to put all these impediments in front of voters that probably haven't even voted this way before. Well, and then, of course, we have to add 
as being of a piece with this, the assault on the U.S. Postal Service. Although, as Julie Holler wrote for FAIR.org, media aren't so much connecting those dots. They're talking about the White House attack on USPS, and they're talking about the election, but they're not necessarily saying, you know, this is going to be right at the crux of this set of problems here. Yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't connect it. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. If you're going to vote by mail, the post office is going to deliver those ballots. Right. So it seems like a huge coincidence if suddenly Donald Trump would be attacking the post office in the midst of an election where people are going to be using vote by mail in unprecedented numbers. So no matter why the president's doing this, if, if you believe it, that he's just mad at Amazon or whatever, even if you take that at face value, the net effect of attacking the post office, of putting partisan people in there, of denying them funding, is it's going to make it harder for them to be able to carry out this responsibility to make sure ballots are delivered and then sent back to people. And the post office is going to need a lot more resources, a lot more staff. This is going to be very difficult for them, too. They are also operating under extraordinary circumstances right now. They also have people that are getting sick and they're putting their lives at risk to deliver mail for us. And an election in which 50%, 60%, 70% of the people vote by mail would be tough for the post office in the best of times, let alone at a time when President Trump seems to be declaring war on them. Well, Politico reported recently that the GOP has a at least $20 million war chest set aside for lawsuits over voting from home. What is the status of efforts to protect November's process? Do we have legislative moves at least being lined up in defense of protecting the vote in November? There's been a ton of lawsuits about all the obscure rules over mail voting. Like, do you need a witness signature on your ballot? Do you need to upload a copy of your ID with your mail ballot? Does your ballot need to be postmarked by election date? Does it need to be received by election date? There are so many rules for mail balloting people don't even know about that could lead to your ballot being thrown out without having any idea that your votes weren't counted. So there's litigation on all of these fronts in a bunch of different states, which I think is a positive development depending on the outcome of that. There's also a lot of state efforts to expand vote by mail. And actually, a fair number of Republican secretaries of state have been making it easier to expand vote by mail, probably because they understand, like Donald Trump, that a lot of Republicans also use vote by mail. They probably don't want their voters to be disenfranchised. The Congress has um, allocated $400 million for vote by mail and other election assistance, which I think pretty much everyone believes is totally insufficient. There's a new bill out from House Democrats, the HEROES Act, that would give the states $3.6 billion dollars for vote by mail, which would be a big step up and also include a number of other reforms that are important, like early voting and online election day registration, because there's still going to be a lot of people that are going to vote in person. And the best way for people to vote in person would be to give them more time so they can social distance at the polls, while also making it easier to vote by mail so that postage is paid, so that it's easy to get an absentee ballot, all of these things. And I think we're probably heading for a really big fight between House Democrats and Senate and the White House over the vote-by-mail provisions in whatever the next recovery package is. I personally think Democrats should have fought a lot harder to put some of this stuff in the first recovery package when they had the political leverage. Well, and this is something clearly where time is of the essence. If we need to be amping up to get these processes in place now, we can't suddenly throw it together in October. 
No, especially with voting by mail, because it's not just like opening a polling place. Voting by mail takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for people to request ballots. It takes a lot of time to get ballots. You can't just show up to vote by mail at 5 p.m. on election day. Right. <laughs> like you can show up and, and vote in person on election day. So states really need to start doing all of this stuff now. And if you talk to state election officials, there's so much equipment they need that they don't have. There's so many more uh, people they need to, to do this kind of thing. They need to train everyone in how to count ballots, how to send out ballots. Otherwise, the system just gets totally overwhelmed, like in Wisconsin, where election officials were having to work 100 hours a week. Uh, people were not getting ballots they requested. People were totally confused about what the rules were to have their absentee ballots counted, whether they needed a witness signature, which they did on their ballots, whether they need to upload a copy of their ID with their ballots, which they did, all of these crazy rules. And so in that case, the data we have from Wisconsin would show that in a much higher turnout election across 50 states, there's going to be a whole lot of problems unless we do a bunch of things right now to make the system run smoother. Well, it's clearly not too soon for people just as individuals to be sorting out if and exactly how they'll be able to vote, you know, to be looking into whatever the the rules are in their locality to make sure that that can happen. Well, we're talking about the impact of the virus, but we know that the suppression, voter suppression, predates all of that. We're also still hearing, aren't we, about purges, about purges of the rolls, another reason to check in and make sure that you are still listed. Are there other voting rights things that maybe are going under the radar that you'd like to call attention to? I think we've talked about a, a bunch of them already, but I mean, I think it's just worth noting that there are already all these efforts before COVID to try to make voting more difficult, whether it was uh, requiring IDs to vote or trying to kick people off the voting rolls or limiting the number of polling places. All of those things are being magnified in a pandemic. And so I think it's really important to pay a lot of attention to the whole debate over vote by mail, because that's going to be a key way people vote in November. I also hope we don't glorify vote by mail, because there are some unintended consequences of that. And then I hope people just stay focused on all of these other fights that are going to remain really critical, and that if you don't have an ID now, it's going to be a lot harder to get one when the DMV is not open. If you're not on the voting rolls right now, it's going to be a lot harder to re-register when there aren't big registration drives. And so I think the big picture is important, but I think all the minutia, all, all the little things, the technical details that we tend to ignore could also have a really big impact in this election during a pandemic. Well, let me just ask you, finally, I've heard some things kind of bubbling up that given the confusion, given the what looks like chaos, at least this far out around the possible the possibilities of voting, that we may have concerns about the legitimacy of whatever happens in the election, that there will be just enough murkiness uh, that folks will be able to call the results into question. And that's not going to be helpful. No, it's not going to be helpful. And I think also given the likelihood of major litigation in one or more key swing states about the rules governing mail balloting, I think it's very possible you could have not just one, but two, three, four, half a dozen um, Bush v. Gore scenarios if the election is close. And so I don't want to be too alarmist in May about this, but just like the virus is scary, the prospect of holding an election in a virus is also very scary. And there are a lot of possibilities that may have seemed remote or even possibly hysterical 
that are really quite possible in this day and age. All the more reason for sober and clear-eyed reporting to at least keep us focused on what's happening, you know, to at least keep us paying attention. Absolutely. No, for, for sure. And I think if anything good has come from the Wisconsin thing is that a lot of people are paying attention to what's happening in the democratic process now in a way that they may have not have been before. We've been speaking with Ari Berman, senior reporter at Mother Jones. They're online at motherjones.com. The book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. Thank you, Ari Berman, for sharing your knowledge and bringing awareness to voter suppression in this country and what is happening to our democracy. And a huge thanks to Janine Jackson and the producers of Counterspin for the great interview. I would like to take this moment to share a message with my community. I know that most of us feel angry or sad because of what we are living in the world. And it's totally fine to be angry or sad, but I just wanted to remind you that you're not alone. As an Afghan refugee to this country, I would like to share a quote from my mom. After every darkness, there is always the light of hope, and we should never lose that hope. We hope you have enjoyed this hour of racial justice. We would like to thank our featured guest, Fred Harris. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kerry Zuni and Roberta Rael. And we want to thank Jason Fuller and NPR's All Things Considered for the panel with Karen Otia, Jelani Cobb, and Elsa Chang. And thank you to Janine Jackson and the producers of Counterspin for the interview with Ari Berman. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We are also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the WK Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Khan Alma Help Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is We Gotta Pray by Alicia Keys. I'm Barbara Ramirez. And I am Riazullah Alikozai. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico.
Diamonds everywhere Singing that street song